Well, when I was uh, in first year at uni, having been a Christian for a year and attending a, a church five suburbs away, I decided that the time had come for me to leave my church and to become a missionary. Uh, there was no substantial youth fellowship in the suburb where I lived. Uh, there were a number of relatively ineffective churches with few youth in them, so I picked one and decided to grace it with my presence. Things went well for a while. The youth group uh, that we started flourished. We grew quickly to about 30 or 40 people. Uh, there were a good number of leaders. However, there was an underlying tension in the relations between the group and the church. Not uncommon amongst youth groups led by punks. You may have heard of such a thing. Uh, a new minister had arrived. He was a very lovely man, genuinely devout Christian, but someone who was not a fan of doctrine. A doctrine divides, he said. Doctrine is narrow and exclusivist and harsh. God is love. And we should be about the business of love. I, however, was a young man and I was on about doctrine. It had captured my soul and my imagination and consequently he and I had a sad but deep lack of alignment and it was only a few months later that he asked me to leave the church and to this day it's still one of the occasions upon which I've wept most long and loud. I look back on that episode with sadness Uh, In the end, I think it was a failure. The group meandered along for a while. It failed to have an impact for Christ, really, in the suburb and eventually uh, kind of collapsed. What's more, the minister was at least a little bit right. Uh, I was a young man on a mission, a young Christian ahead of myself and there were more angles and bumps and spiky bits about me than I was aware of. Deeper, richer love was needed. But the minister was more wrong then he was right. The minister was more wrong than he was right. He was wrong at the level of principle, you see. Where he was disastrously wrong was to oppose in principle love and doctrine. Love on the one hand and doctrine on the other hand are not alternatives as though you need to choose between them and decide to be either a loving kind of Christian or a doctrinal kind of Christian. Rather, love and doctrine, love and truth are part of the same reality, that reality which is at the heart of the universe, God himself, God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, who is himself love, who is himself truth. It's for this reason that author C.F. Allison entitled his affirmation of orthodox Christian teaching uh, in his book, The Cruelty of Heresy. The Cruelty of Heresy. That's a great title, isn't it? The Cruelty of Heresy, because it brings together two things that we normally and often keep in separate compartments. Love and truth. Heresy is, though, cruel. It's loveless. It's vicious. If it is true that God is at the heart of the universe, then believing and living according to that truth is the best way to believe and to live. It's the most peaceful and joyful and proper way to believe and to live. And so to teach people to believe and live that way in accordance with the truth is the kindest thing that you can do for them. The flip side is also true. To misteach or to falsely teach or to be haphazard or lazy about teaching, this is to be cruel. It's to cause people to believe and live in ways that are fundamentally out of sync with the way things are with the way that God has made them, with the way that God is. 
This is the 75th anniversary of EU and alongside the primary party which we're having, which is the year-long mission, the personal challenge for you, which is Seek 5, the EU is also throughout the year going to be engaged in a series of public meetings working through our doctrinal basis under the heading of This We Believe. In a sense, we're saying to the university, you see, here we stand. For 75 years, here is where we have stood. This is what has guided our life. These are the convictions which undergird our existence and mission in and to this university. Not because we're uncertain and insecure little people desperately clinging on to a few securities in life, but because this is the kindness of God to us. Doctrine and love in Christ. This is the kindest thing that we can do for Sydney University. Stand here, believe and proclaim these things. And anything less would be cruelty. So we're going to take some time over ten different weeks to explore each of these fundamental aspects of Christian doctrine out of a sense of love. Of course, we live in a world which hates doctrine. It can't stand the notion of truth. It sees in speech about doctrine and truth only violence and false claims to power, the suppression of other voices, the marginalisation of difference. What's more, it is the case that some have used claims to truth and appeals to doctrine precisely in order to exercise power and control over other people. That's true. We live in a world which has taken refuge in relativism, against truth, in a world which says, what's true for me? But the response to that misuse of power is not to turn the lights out altogether. Our author and outstanding missionary Leslie Newbigin Uh, put it this way in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. He said, The relativism which is not willing to speak about truth, but only about what's true for me, is an evasion of the serious business of living. It is the mark of a tragic loss of nerve in our contemporary society. It is a preliminary symptom of death. We are a dying culture. We are a decaying society because we have lost our moorings in any sense of truth. But we have been made alive in Christ. We've been reconciled to the Father through Jesus in the power of the Spirit and so amongst us there is no loss of nerve but only the life and vitality of loving truth and truthful love. And so as we begin this series together this week and then the following, I think it's three, then we have a bit of a break, we come back to it, then in second semester we come back to it again. As we begin this series, I want to lead us in prayer in the words of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians 4 that God would build us up as the body of Christ here on this campus. Will you join me in earnest prayer to God? Let's pray together. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we give you the thanks and praise of our hearts that you have given your own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to live and die for the salvation of the world. We pray now as we start this series of studies on the heart of Christian doctrine that you would grow us each in maturity, that we would come to a unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would so conform our minds to Christ that we would not be tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery and by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. 
but that we would know and live and believe and speak the truth in love and so grow up into Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, well you see the first doctrinal statement there with respect to Holy Scripture. And the question as we approach Holy Scripture is where should we start? Where do we start? This is going to be a hard work talk. I've got no jokes from here on in and uh, so that's uh, really going to test your mettle. Can you concentrate without a joke for more than 15 minutes at a time? That's the time it takes between ads in a television program, right? So are you more than a TV watcher? Here's the test. That was a joke, you see, I was lying. All right, here's a strange pair of texts, uh, and you'll need to write down the Bible verses. Uh, I want you to work very hard this time, okay? This is a hard work time, a hard work lecture, uh, and we are serious business. I've got a lot to say, and so I'm going to say it quickly, and you need to work hard with me. Here's a strange pair of texts which get us into the topic. Acts chapter 12, verse 24. Acts 12, verse 24 reads this way. But the word of God continued to advance and gain adherence. Or again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Perhaps even a little more bizarre. Remember Jesus Christ, says the Apostle Paul, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. You have here a picture of this thing, this, this power, this tour de force, called the word of God, which has been unleashed in the world. It it advances, it gains adherence, not far from taking captive. It's like this big tank rolling across the plains and through the cities and across the villages, not destroying, but vivifying, bringing life. Even when its authorised ambassadors are put in chains, it's not chained. It remains unleashed, powerful, this word of God. Well, what is this word, this speech from about of God? I want to take some time to work through the first few verses of the epistle to the Hebrews, which I think gives us some very important clues. Go with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, God spoke. There's words of God. God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to three. Now notice three vital things about this. Firstly, the players here in this text are God, the God who spoke in many and various ways through the prophets in the past, taking human beings and making them the instrument of his speech, but who has now decisively, decisively spoken to us climactically in these last days through his Son. God is the great initiator, the great communicator, always on the front foot, always making things happen, not waiting to be responsive. This is grace, you see, to be on the front foot. And the focal point for this gracious and graceful communication is now his son, Jesus. Now the reason that the author gives 
for this is clear. This son is possessed of a dignity and a glory and a being which is the equivalent only of God. He's the heir of all things. I don't know if you've uh, received an inheritance, sadly I would imagine, already in your life. I'm about to receive an inheritance. I filled in the forms just a little while ago. Uh, They arrived in Hungary uh, uh, where my father died just last year and I will receive an inheritance at the moment. It will be modest. He is the heir of all things. All things. That is uh, because he is the one through whom God created the worlds. He's the heir at the end of all things because he was there at the beginning of all things. Implying, of course, that he himself, like God, is not created. He is the reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of his very being, and therefore uniquely capable of being the means by which God speaks to us. In fact, now what we have is a direct and personal speech from God, in contrast to the way that speaking by the prophets is indirect and not via God's own person. That's the first point. Second point, this. Notice that speech and communication are in one sense secondary. Yes, it's true that this son is uniquely positioned to be the revelation of God to us, but more than that, and prior to that, in importance, is what he does, is what he achieves. Notice that the content of this speaking to us by a son is not speaking at all. It's very interesting, isn't it? He's spoken to us by a son who blah, 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 blah. And what are the the key things to say about what this son says? Well, it's not about what he says, it's what he does. His activity, his achievement. And in Hebrews, it's stated for the first time here and then throughout Hebrews repeated innumerable times. Always a twofold achievement. Notice it when he made purification for sins and when he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What this son does is not primarily give us information for our minds, but transformation of our status and representation of our need in the very throne of God. First and foremost, the gospel is about the work of Christ, the achievement of the person of Christ, that work which is past once and for all, the offering of the one true sacrifice for sins and that work which is in the present and future for us who believe which is to be our ongoing high priest at the right hand of God interceding for us, tending over us or as the Apostle Paul puts it nourishing and tenderly caring for us. Point one in Hebrews God is the great initiator now by his son. Point two in Hebrews that word of the son that God has spoken to us is not a word at all it's an action. It's an action, an achievement, purification for sins, seated at the right hand of the Father. But thirdly, thirdly, precisely because this historical achievement of Christ, what's properly called the Gospel, that is his death and resurrection, because that is a past event, it is brought to us, it is made present to us by words, by the Gospel in that secondary dependent sense, namely words which speak to us of that achievement on the cross. After describing how the Son is greater than angels, a very interesting discussion, which I'm sure you'll benefit from greatly, uh, the author of the Hebrews makes exactly this point. Pick it up at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, because Jesus is much greater than angels, therefore we must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the message declared 
through angels was valid, that is the old covenant, every transgression or disobedience received a just penalty, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first through the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard him, while God added his testimony by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Do you hear his point? Here is a salvation that has been won or achieved by Jesus and it has been declared. That's what you have to do to an achievement. Declare it. First, through the Lord. Entrusted then to a first generation of believers who heard him. They attested it to a second generation which includes the author in this case. And so on and so on and so on down to little old you and me. You and me. And in particular with God adding his own testimony. In their case, signs and wonders and various miracles, but primarily the gift of the Holy Spirit, illuminating the mind and heart of those who hear and believe. And you, can, you can see his point, you see. Because this is the case, pay very, very careful attention to his word. Everything hinges on it. There is where you will get purification for sins on that cross. And you've heard a word about that cross, so pay very very careful attention to it. What this means is that intrinsic to becoming a Christian, intrinsic to becoming a Christian is recognising the Word of God. Intrinsic to becoming a Christian is recognising the Word of God. There is no Christianity Without the word of God, the two go hand hand in hand together simply in the nature of things. It can be no other way. This achievement which has been won by Christ is accessed for us, by us, through the word which is proclaimed. You see this, for example, in the Apostle Paul's description of the way that the Thessalonians became Christians. We also constantly give thanks to God for this, that when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as what it really is, God's word, which is also at work in you believers. What was it for them to become a Christian? What was it for you to become a Christian? It was to hear a message. It was to hear some words, in particular some words about God focused on the wonderful reality of his making purification for your sins through his Son, who is now raised and ascended and seated at the right hand of God. And they received this word, lots of other words, all sorts of messengers, there were words about God's left, right and centre in the ancient world. It was a multi-ethnic, multi-religious kind of world, of course it was. And they received this particular word about God, not just as another human word, not based in human thought, not bearing human authority and foundation, but as a divine word. A divine word about a divine achievement, bearing divine authority. Now I labour this point, and I've gone a great length and used up nearly half my time on this point for good reason. What we're talking about here is the doctrine of revelation. The revelation of God, the reality that God speaks to us, and so far... What we've said is that the doctrine of revelation is intrinsic to the Christian gospel and to being a Christian. There simply is no such thing as Christianity without revelation from God. And in particular, 
it means that the place to start in our whole understanding of Scripture is with the Gospel, with the essence of Christian faith itself, that word about God which we receive through the gift of the Holy Spirit as the word bearing divine authority. In particular, what this means is that our starting point is not some general theory about how we know things in the world, which then focuses down to how we know things about God and which then tests the Gospel to see whether it meets these requirements for knowledge. This idea of starting with a theory of knowledge, uh, what in the philosophy department is called epistemology, is almost unpreventable in our culture. We have, we have almost incapable of not making this starting point to start with some general theory about things and then test any claim for knowledge against our general theory. But it is precisely what we must prevent as we approach this topic of the knowledge of God. Do you understand the reason why? Can you see why that must be the case that we don't start with a general theory but we start with the Gospel? Why? If what you start with is a theory of knowledge, according to which you then make the judgment of whether the gospel kind of stacks up to it and counts as good knowledge, then what you've done is effectively put something over God, over his word. In fact, you put yourself and your theories about knowledge and your theories about God and your theories about his word over God himself. And you know what that's called in another word? That's called sin. That's called sin. Karl Barth, who saw and expressed this thought as clearly as anyone, put it this way. He says, just as the reality of the word of God in Jesus Christ bears its possibility within itself, as does also the reality of the Holy Spirit by whom the word of God comes to man, so too the possibility of the knowledge of God and therefore the knowability of God cannot be questioned by means of general criteria of knowledge, but only from within this real knowledge itself. Therefore it's quite impossible to ask whether God is knowable, because this question is already decided. You hear his point. You can't stack up some higher authority or theory about knowledge and test God against it. That is sin. That is pride. It might be good philosophical practice, but that just says where philosophical practice is on the moral and spiritual scale. We start with the Gospel. We start with the Gospel because this question is already decided for you in being a Christian. For in being a Christian, you have received the Word of God as the Word of God, not as a human word or anyone else's. The Apostle Peter makes the same point. He says, you've been born anew. You're a Christian person, you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, not not of stuff which is going to die, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring Word of God. For, he quotes the Old Testament, says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. Stunning, isn't it? Think of all human glory. I don't know if you've seen glory. I mean, if you watch the uh, royal wedding, when is that? Is that this week? Someone, Prince, what's his name? Charles. Has it happened? Camilla? Have they done yet? Saturday. It'll be glorious. 
I mean, it'll be boring, but, you know, or the funeral for the Pope, or, or wealth. I don't know if you've ever touched wealth, like really seen people who live in filthy, rich ways, where nothing they have is ordinary, ever. There is a lot of glory. You know what the Bible says about that glory? Pathetic. All the flesh is like grass. All its glory is like the flower. You know what the really strong, powerful, enduring thing is? The only really strong, powerful, enduring thing in this world? The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. It endures forever. It's the imperishable seed by which you've been born again. It endures. So you will endure if you've been born from it. He says... That word is the gospel that was gospel to you. That word is the gospel which has been gospel to you. Now, of course, when you think about it, this only makes sense, doesn't it? If God is personal, then the way we are to find out about God is personally. The only way you find out about persons personally is by revelation, by them revealing themselves to you. But in fact, it's even more sensible when you think about it a little further. See, quite contrary to the way we like to imagine ourselves, we human beings are not the neutral observers and thinkers that we might like to imagine. In fact, this is one of the most helpful points that the whole postmodern agenda makes. We all have an angle, don't we? And the truth of the matter is that our angle as human beings, our perspective on God, far from being neutral, is hostile to God. It leans against God. It's reluctant to know God. In fact, it's repulsed by God. We hate God. For when light shines in darkness, what does darkness do but turn away? Not only human finiteness, but more importantly human sinfulness means that there is and can never be any knowledge of God apart from God. There is no possibility of knowledge from God, knowledge of God rather, from the ground up. Only the pride-shattering, crucifying, humbling revelation of God from God himself. It's called the Gospel or the Word of God. I want to say that these three points, the intrinsic nature of revelation to being a Christian, the personal knowledge of God coming to us in a personal way by self-communication, and the helplessness and hopelessness of any possibility of natural knowledge of God, these things constitute an adequate doctrine of revelation. Precisely in the context of the achievement of God in Christ on the cross. And in their denial lies the way of disaster. Now you might be asking, well that's all well and good, but I thought we were talking about Scripture. You idiot Andrew, you've got the wrong doctrine, it's number 12. Well that's a fair point, we are here to talk about Scripture. But the only way to talk about Scripture is to talk about Revelation. And you'll be pleased to know that from here the sailing gets smoother. You see, when you receive the Word of God, as the Word of God, not just as a human word, like all the words you'll hear in your lectures this afternoon, So you put your trust in Jesus. You give yourself to him in heart and mind and soul and strength. You believe his words that no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son has chosen to reveal him. 
You believe his words when he says that the one who sent him is true and that he declares to the world what he hears from that one. You believe him when he quotes the Old Testament, which he does extensively and from virtually every portion of it, and speaks of it in this way, have you not read what was said to you by God? That's Jesus' view of the Old Testament and you believe it. And that disobeying the Old Testament is to make void the word of God. You believe these things because you have been gospelized, because you have been word of Godded, because you've been born again by that living and enduring word and so you believe Jesus your Lord when he says them. Notice then, your belief in Jesus brings with it a commitment to Holy Scripture. Initially, the Scripture which he quotes as authoritative, the Old Covenant, but also the Scripture which records his own words, and then the Scripture which he authorised for his apostles as he told them to teach others all that he had commanded. As you receive the Word of God, so you trust Jesus and you adopt his view of many things, including scripture. God's relationship to his people has always been covenantal. That is a promise of commitment for the forgiveness of sins past and the blessing of life in the future. And that covenant, as we've seen in Jesus quoting from it, has always included written form. The first covenant was written down by Moses, an authoritative preservation and objective reality of the covenantal relationship between God and people. Listen to this. Exodus 24.3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he got some blood from a sacrifice. He took the book of the covenant, the words that he'd written down, and he read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient and identification between the word of God and the book of the covenant and Moses took the blood and threw it on them. What, just what you'd expect, isn't it, really? You say, we're going to obey God, so you get splattered. In other words, may our blood be like this blood, spilt, the blood of a dead thing. May God kill us, in other words, if we don't keep the words of this covenant. Likewise, the new covenant in the blood of Jesus finds written form in the words of Christian scripture. Jesus promised the gift of his Holy Spirit to the disciples. He said, I've still many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now when the Spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. He will glorify me because he'll take what's mine and declare it to you. The initial apostles, and controversially at least in his own time, the Apostle Paul, who could then say, Anyone who claims to be a prophet must acknowledge that what I am writing to you is a command of God. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Notice secondly though, that there is both an identity and a distinction between God and the written form of the covenant relationship. On the one hand, it's obvious to say that scripture is not God. God is eternal, scripture is a creation. We worship God we don't worship scripture. Bibliolatry is a sin, just like any form of idolatry. But at the same time, God is entirely unashamed to use merely earthly 
and created things for his divine and eternal purpose. There's no embarrassment on God's part to write his word in Hebrew letters, in Greek letters, in the form of a crucified man. And so precisely because we love God, we love scripture as his word to us. Precisely because we honour God, we honour scripture as his rule over us. God has taken and used earthly things like words on a page, like the body of Jesus, and made them serve his eternal purposes. But notice thirdly the non-reversible order of these things. You are committed to scripture because you are committed to Jesus, not the other way around. You are committed to scripture because you are committed to Jesus and because you are committed to Jesus, you must be committed to scripture as an act of obedience to him. See, at one level, this doctrinal statement ought to be our last doctrinal statement, the one which having agreed on the gospel of next nine statements, the outcome is finally delivered. Well, I do believe in this God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit through whom I have been saved and therefore I believe in the Scriptures. Revelation from the Gospel leads us to Jesus in whom we trust and therefore we adopt his attitude to the written form of the covenant, the Scripture which has been given. So with all that in place, what would you say in your opening doctrinal statement about Scripture? Well, you'd say three things. The first is, regarding the source of Holy Scripture, its origin is nothing short of divine. Therefore, it shares the divine infallibility of God's own word. By infallibility, we mean it doesn't fail. That is, it's utterly unfailing. It's entirely trustworthy in achieving the purposes for which God purposed it. And if you're sharp, you'll see an important move right there. For that, the purposes for which it is given, yes, it's infallible, but not necessarily for other purposes. We'll come back to that. The second thing you would be keen to say regarding its status in your life and the life of the church is that it alone has supreme authority. That's where the statement goes. The divine inspiration and infallibility of Holy Scripture as originally given and its supreme authority. Nothing can stand alongside it or over it. Not our own intuitions, not the experience of our lives, not the tradition of the church. If you feel that human sexuality needs to be re-evaluated in light of contemporary scientific findings, if you feel that the uniqueness of Christ seems harsh in the light of modern social theory and so on and so on, well, bully for you. Pigs to you. That's all well and good. But the supreme authority for that issue and for every other issue, for the Christian person, can only be Holy Scripture, which is the Word of God. Human words are very interesting. Human experiences are very interesting. But it is they which are judged by Scripture, not Scripture judged by them. Notice this doesn't exclude the presence of other lesser authorities, which can function significantly but never decisively in the Christian life. But it does subordinate them to Scripture. Notice thirdly then, you would speak of the orbit of Scripture, namely all matters of faith and conduct. 
all matters, but all matters in a particular area. To claim too much for Scripture is as faulty as it is to claim too little for it. And Scripture makes no claim to be authoritative in gardening practices, the history of China, or even the full workings of the human personality and psyche. It may have contributions to make to each of those areas. I'm not sure what I would have to say about China. For example, a psychology which doesn't integrate the Bible's teaching about sin can only ever be defective. You write that in your psych exam and see how you go. But nor does the Bible have everything to say about human psychology. It is infallibly given as the supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. Well, we need to conclude. We don't need to just affirm a truth about Scripture. We need to live and approach Scripture in a way that's consistent with that truth, reverentially, humbly, passionately. Reverentially, in that your response to God is tied up, sorry, your response to Scripture is tied up with your response to God. Uh, The great uh, Christian leader in England, John Stott, put it this way. Listen to this quote. The hallmark of evangelicals is not so much an impeccable set of words as a submissive spirit. Namely, their a priori resolve to believe and obey whatever Scripture may be shown to teach. They're committed to Scripture in advance, whatever it may later be shown to say. They claim no liberty to lay down their own terms for belief and behaviour. They see this humble and obedient stance as an essential implication of Christ's lordship over them. You see the point. Reverentially, a priori submissive spirit out of obedience to Christ. But also humbly, in that we recognise that an infallible word of God in Scripture is one thing, my infallible grasp of it is another thing. And therefore I always have the view that there is more light yet to break from God's word, Holy Scripture. That I have always more to learn. And that whilst my trust is in it, I'm constantly re-evaluating myself in the light of it. And then thirdly, passionately, giving yourself with all your mind and your considerable gifts to the study of his word. Don't be sloppy and lazy. If you really think that Holy Scripture is divinely inspired and infallible, it is the supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct, then use your every ounce of grey matter in understanding and submitting to it. I want to suggest to you that this is the big one. What your convictions are about this substantially determines the kind of Christian that you will be. Sharp, clear, strong, faithful Christians always have this doctrine firmly in place and lived out in their lives. Woolly, vague, unclear, indecisive Christians, what you might call donut Christians, interesting and tasty around the edges, but a bit vacant in the centre. Always start down the path with a lack of clarity here. No, Scripture is supremely our authority. Not my experience, not my tradition, not the church, not the Pope. Scripture, Scripture must be our supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. And I want to urge you, make sure that you and along with you, all of us in the EU, hold fast to this word of life which is the Word of God, which is Holy Scripture.